This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're having a chat with David Watt. David owns and manages his 5,600 hectare mixed farming business, running around 1,000 merino ewes and winter cropping, as well as an intensive lamb feedlot near Trundle in central west New South Wales. In this episode, David talks to us about the intricacies of developing a sheep feedlot, including what to consider before starting up a feedlotting business and the changes he has made in his feedlot design over time. He also tells us what he looks for when buying in lambs and why he is so particular about the characteristics and traits of the sheep, which means he's often sourcing and buying lambs from right across Australia. You'll also hear David explain to us the importance of getting your animal health and on-farm biosecurity just right and how linking in with professionals outside of the farm, including your local land services vet, is so valuable to growing a productive, prepared and profitable business. Local Land Services Senior Natural Resource Officer, Jasmine Wells, managed to squeeze in this chat with David on one of his recent trips into town for supplies. David, can you tell us a little bit about your operation? Yes, Jasmine. Well, nice to be here with you today. We run about a 5,600 hectare farm in between uh, Trundle and Condoblin, closer to, to Trundle. We've got a winter cropping. We run a couple of thousand merino ewes and join them to borders and keep our first cross ewe portion, join them to Dorsets. And of course, we run the feedlot. And so those lambs of your own are the only lambs going into that feedlot? We use a feedlot to finish our own lambs. We also will put our young ewes into the feedlot to grow them out. But we also buy trade lambs through local sale yards or um, through Auctions Plus. Also maybe down around the Yass area, um, in around Cowra and the Tablelands areas. And, you know, look, we have gone as far afield as South Australia to get lambs uh, when the trades work. And so what are those key factors when you're choosing lambs? We have a fairly tight specification, I suppose, of what we want to purchase. Normally, we're looking for a lamb that would average around 40 to 42 kilos live on entry. We like to buy a mob of lambs that are no less than 36 kilos, no more than 44 or 45 kilos in that thing. So we're trying to get a tight grouping of lambs that are all the same, if you like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. That's our main thing as far as bait. We like to buy new season lambs when we can. Age is always an issue, so you're always checking on, on age. We do try and go to the same growers and, you know, we have growers who really like buying off and then there are some others that we have put on the list where we maybe won't go there again. Mm-hmm. We're fairly particular with what we buy. We like to buy a second cross lamb and they go quite well in the feedlot. We do buy quite a lot of a first cross, so a merino with a dorset over merino or a white suffolk over merino. We keep away from the shedding breeds. We haven't actually done any pure merino lambs, though I do believe with the right merino lambs, they'd go quite well within the feedlot. 
We just haven't actually gone there yet. We're fairly particular on the animal health side of things of what we're buying and especially auctions plus you know we really check out to make sure that the lambs have had all their vaccinations and been drenched and just what husbandry has happened with those lambs there's a few catches in auctions plus where you have to look for if they uh, say that the lambs will be tagged on uh, day of loading onto the truck well you know they're still on mum and they haven't actually even been weaned yet which is a something maybe you need to be aware of when you're buying lambs there you can get into a few little troubles and you've obviously learnt this along the way when did you get started in feedlotting like why the change to Um, a feedlotting operation as well we started feeding lambs in the mid 80s so 1984 was a drought year and the trundle and to finish our lambs we fed them in the corner near the yards and and i remember that was our first little go at giving lambs a bit of grain back then lambs weren't worth very much it was very hard to make a dollar out of finishing them and over the years that progressively got to the stage where to finish lambs we needed to put some grain through them i suppose we were having a fairly high stocking rate and weren't didn't have the pasture to finish our lambs properly So we found over the years that we're doing more and more grain feeding lambs. In the 90s and early 2000s, as lamb prices started to increase, it became more profitable to put some grain into the lambs. I think the current feedlot is probably the fifth or sixth actually iteration of feedlot that we've had. Now, we've started out very, very basic. And each time we've just tried to improve one aspect of it or what we thought we needed. You've come a long way from just feeding in the corner of the yards. I've been out to your feedlot. It's very impressive. Yeah, we've tried to address most of the shortcomings that we had in our previous feedlots. So when we set out to build this feedlot, I knew what I wanted. I knew what I didn't like doing. I know I don't like cleaning out water troughs. And I figure if I don't like cleaning out a water trough, most of the blokes that work with me don't like feeding out, cleaning out a water trough either. So we came up with a design where we didn't have to do that or it minimises the need to clean the water system out. For the listener, do you want to explain water system a bit because it's like nothing I'd ever seen before? The mechanics of it, I suppose, are a bit complex, but at the end of the day, it's just running water. It runs through a very shallow trough at about four or 500 mils off the ground. There's a bit of an angle on the trough, so the water just drops in one end, runs through, drops out the other end. The flow rate is controlled so that if they drop a little bit of grain into the trough, that will wash out at the end, and there's a little strainer on the end that will catch that. So we've found over the years, you know, the lambs will come up and the first thing they're going to do is blow their nose into the water, and that'll wash out and get caught in the little mesh filter. The water then runs underground and is collected in a tank, then pumped through to a filtration system up into an overhead tank and back down and gravity fed through the water troughs. The beauty of it is that it's perfectly clean water all the time because it's filtered. We sterilise the water. There is a sterilisation unit attached to the whole system. We have started lately to chlorinate the water We've found over the years that that's the best way to keep the water clean, to keep the bacteria down. And that didn't affect consumption at all, adding the chlorine in? The chlorine is something you need to be very careful with. Anything over, I think it's five parts per million, can affect consumption. So it's something that we test 
very regularly when we're chlorinating and just to make sure that there's enough chlorine, but it's not too much. I think the rule of thumb is if you can smell the chlorine in the water, it's too much. Yeah. And you've got a automated feed system as well. The feeding system is the same, I suppose, as a lot of the other common automated systems. It's sourced from an American company and straight out of a, what they use over there for their chooks and pigs. It's basically a flex flow auger that brings the feed from a silo and into what is called a chain disc system, which is just a very long chain with nylon discs moulded onto it that pulls the feed through a PVC pipe. It'll drop down into the top of the feeder and each feeder will get filled in turn as they fill up, they block up, of course, and the feed just goes to the next feeder. It's fairly effective. It means there's no hand feeding whatsoever. Once you put the feed into the silo, that's it. I suppose the downside of it is that we're limited to one silo. Once that silo is full of that ration, you don't really get to change your ration very quickly. It can take quite a while to change your ration in our systems, which is one of the drawbacks to it. But over the years, we've worked out the ration that we want. We have a private nutritionist who has worked out a pellet that we use in our ration, and we have that contract made at what used to be Amboss. I think there's Riverina now, and we've kind of got our ration fairly worked out, and it's pretty rare that we need to change our ration. Mind you, we do feed tests very regularly to make sure that we're hitting the right protein energy targets. And that's not to do really with our pellet. It's more just if we change what grain we're using. And does that depend upon the market a little bit or the type of stock you've got in there at the time? Why would that feed ration change? So we have a different ration for our induction than we do to our finishing ration. But the induction is done in a separate facility to the main facility. The main reason that you'd be looking to change the ration is if there's a difference with your grain. Usually it's more just the ratio of grain or the different grains that are in it. So you might need to increase the lupin content or if it's chickpeas that we're using or something like that, maybe to increase your protein or maybe decrease if you've got too high protein. It's just a bit of that. It's something we regularly check with the feed test. They're fairly cheap, the feed test, and then they give you the results back within a week and a fairly simple thing that you just need to do. Yeah. And so not that many people have a system like yours, but what do people really need to consider from day one, probably through to where you are now? What are the key things to consider when setting up a feed lot? Interested in going into feeding lambs, the first thing that you need to look at is basically where you're going to put the feed lot. That's going to determine a lot of choices from then on of where you site that feedlot. And there's a multiple considerations, I suppose, in that site being it's got to be somewhere close because once you've got lambs in there, you're going to nearly live with those lambs. You've got to be ready to go and see them morning and night every day of the week. So you don't want it where it's five kilometres away from your house where you've got to drive and through a creek or something if it's wet that you can't get to. So you need it somewhere nice and close. You need to then think if it's going to be nice and close to the house, which side of your house you're going to put it on because they stink. <laughs> the smell can be quite confronting in a wet time. And also in a very dry time when you get an inversion of an evening, that's when the smell really tends to just spread in every direction. So it's a quite sour kind of smell. But then drainage is a big issue because it might be dry when you're considering, oh, I'm going to feed these lambs, but it will become wet at some stage. And then access during the wet period is a big issue. How do you deal with the manure? 
is another issue. So if you're going to a fairly concentrated, um, intensive feedlot and they're confined to a small space, you're going to produce a lot of manure. And you need to be able to deal with that manure and get rid of it out of their pen and stockpile it and then spread it or do something with it from there. You need to have all the right authorities and things from the local council. Depending on your numbers, you might need to get an EPA authorization as well, a license, whatever it is. So there's lots and lots to think about. When we first started the design of this feedlot, I think I spent 12 months just going through all that before we put a shovel in the ground. So there was a lot of planning. We ended up engaging some company from Orange to actually come out and do the whole design to make sure that everything was going to work as far as our drainage, how we managed manure, how the sheep accessed in and out, what are we going to do with sick animals, what are we going to do with dead animals. If you're going to go into it, we're not even full-time, we're only really still opportunity, but if you want to have a good thing that's easy to manage, then you really do need a lot of thought into it. Yeah, there's a lot more to it than just getting feed rations right. Yeah, feed rations are a main part. Everyone talks about growth rates and how great the growth rates are. And really, at the end of the day, you might have a fantastic growth rate, but if you've got to feed him a heap of feed to get that growth rate, maybe the lower growth rate, that's a better feed conversion efficiency is where the money is. That's in my mind. That's what we kind of aim for is we want to try and convert what we're feeding them into the most meat. That might mean we don't get the highest growth rates but it's maybe where we kind of make our money. But your efficiency is a little bit higher. Yeah, that's what we're aiming at with our ration and our diet. It's not to have them growing at 500 or 600 grams per head per day, which some people say they can get, which some animals probably do. But you want a fairly consistent lot of animals doing 300 to 350 grams per head per day, but they're only eating a kilo and a bit a day. They're not eating three kilos of feed a day. And so the margins are quite tight, something to consider when feedlotting? Yeah, once you start trading, you work on a very slim margin. You need to be very careful that you actually have a market at the end of it for what you're looking to produce. You need to have a plan as far as what are you going to produce? Are you going to produce a heavy export animal? Is a trade of into a, you know, one of the, the supermarkets or domestic? Or just what are you going to do with that animal? And from there, you need to make sure that you've got the contract in place at the ends when you're selling. Otherwise, the land market, everyone knows how fickle it can be. And the little bit of a margin that you make on each animal can disappear very quickly if you're not having everything kind of locked in. And then animal welfare, that's a huge concern in a feedlotting system. Yeah, animal welfare is going to or probably even become more of an issue, I think, as we go along with feedlotting. You need to look after the animal that's in there. So you need to make sure they've got clean, cool water. You need to make sure they've got easy access to the feed. But you also need to make sure they've got shade. That's one of the big things. You see some people are out there and they don't have much shade in their feedlot or no shade at all. And even in the winter months in our feedlot, the animals will shelter underneath the shade cloth that runs across the pens, even on a cooler day. You see it in the paddocks, they're all under the one tree. That's a big thing. Then you need to be able to actually identify animals that aren't going too well in the pen. So you need to be very aware of whatever animal health issues are there. So acidosis is always going to be a big issue in any kind of a feedlot. And you need to be able to identify that early so that the animal doesn't suffer very much or you can correct what's going on with that animal before it does start to suffer. 
So in our feedlot each morning, we will walk the pens and try and identify any animals that look a bit off and try and work out what's going on. Also, you need to be looking out for any animals that need removing immediately because there's something wrong and you're always going to get a few deaths. And that can be quite confronting of sometimes in the feedlot, especially if you're confronted with a disease that you're not sure about. And I learned my lesson one time when we had animals in the feedlot, we thought we were having an outbreak of pulpy kidney. We decided that we would go back and revaccinate. Maybe we'd had a bad needling practice at the time and hadn't got every animal properly. They all had been needled. So we re-needled all our lambs and 4,000 odd lambs in there to do that through. And then waited, of course, another week because it takes maybe a week before you're going to see a response. And in that time, we still had lambs dying. And it wasn't until after that week, I then called the vet and got a vet involved. And the lesson is get the vet involved right from the word go. As it was, this is quite a curable disease. And we'd lost quite a number of lambs that could easily have been saved. So not only was it very costly, it was very emotionally upsetting seeing lambs suffering and Mm -hmm. thinking you had it right, but from my own silly mistake and thinking I knew what I was doing, having quite a number of lambs pass away. I think that's common in agriculture. You know, most producers are fairly well experienced and in most cases are all over it and they hesitate to seek help, but it doesn't hurt to ask the question, does it, from the beginning? No, and that's maybe in that first planning stage. Consult a bit. Ask. The LLS vet's fantastic. We use our local vets all the time. They're the first port of call for us. We also have a private vet that we use. Nowadays, if we have a lamb that there is any question about why it has died, then I'll call a vet straight away. I don't muck around anymore. We will autopsy 90% of the lambs that die. We do our own autopsy. And usually we're getting not too bad at it now, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, within reason what's happened. If there's any doubt, we'll call a vet and just get someone out to quickly check. And look, most of the time it is just the pulpy kidney, it's acidosis, it's one of those ones. But every now and then, there's something different mm-hmm. that you're just not sure of and it, it just pays. And I guess that leads into my next question, which I didn't warn you about, but biosecurity, which is a hot topic at the moment. Give us a rundown on your sort of daily biosecurity, trying to reduce threats. It's a hard one, biosecurity on the farm, isn't it? It's not something that's easily controllable. We think that we can control the vehicles that come on, but our agent comes in, who knows where he's been, neighbours turn up. I suppose when we host a field day or something like that, we'll make sure we've got some little tubs out so everyone can sterilise their boots, etc. But now with the risk of FMD, it really does bring it to the front of mind how we're going to deal with it. I'm thinking in our own case, we'll have to make a a car park somewhere separate. Any visitors come into the office where we'll have a number of pairs of gumboots that they can go and put on, take their shoes off, put on the gumboots, then they're welcome to come in. Whether we need to go as far as having some overalls or something else there for them to wear as well, I'm not really sure. The FMD risk, it's always been there, I think, for Australia. Yeah, it has. It's going to make it very hard this year going in and buying a lot of lambs. And I think the market already is reflecting that a lot of people are a little bit uncertain about, gosh, am I going to risk all this money? What's going to happen? We don't know what's going to happen. And so it's going to change it a little bit. Well, the politicians have got hold of it, haven't they? So, you know, they've kind of played some political games with it and maybe that's overstated the risk and maybe that's what's happening in the market just at the moment with some of the lambs. I think 
there's still a lot of issues with COVID in abattoirs and you know, there's a lot of other risks out there that are kind of maybe having a bigger effect than the FMD risk at the moment as far as the land market goes. Um, I'm no expert there whatsoever, so I really don't know. I think COVID has at least prepared us to be more aware of these things, so in a way it's helped. Yeah, I suppose aware of how hard it would be to control mm. a disease outbreak. We can't do it with humans, so... Maybe the lambs are a little bit more easy to control. I don't know. So for anyone kind of you know out there borrowing money to buy lambs, it's a big risk all of a sudden to have the industry just shut down. I'm not sure exactly how we're going to get, you know, deal with that. Have a good conversation with our bank, I suppose. That's true. I imagine there's some people who've already had those conversations. There will be some nervous bank managers out there. And so you use consultants. We do. I suppose that's one of the biggest things that's changed in my farming career is when we started mid-80s, there really was no consultants around. You might use a DPI agronomist, but now, gosh, you know, what do you have? We have a business consultant, an agronomist, a nutritionist, you name it, they're kind of there. So yeah, we do use quite a number of consultants because you need that expertise these days. It's As a farmer, I suppose, it's more a generalist. It's very hard to be able to have all that expertise in every field. So the consultants are a way of buying that expertise when we need it. And it certainly makes life a lot easier to have that expertise on hand. And so for people going into that, who would be their first pearl of call, do you think? There's a lot of info on the internet. There are some guidelines for feedlotting of lambs. And I believe the DPI have got a very good set of guidelines out. I'm not sure when it was reviewed last. I believe the LLS have got guidelines out as well for feedlotting. And I'd start with those guidelines. I mean, I'd contact the local LLS and the livestock officer and talk to them. Make sure you've got a good agent involved. An agent can make or break a lamb trading enterprise very easily. So you need to have a good agent who knows his stuff so that you can, A, source the lambs, but B, sell the lambs at the other end. And some of the contracts that come out are filled very, very quickly. So you need someone who's on the ball. But yeah, I'd start with the LLS, DPI, and then looking at the nutrition side of things, there's commercially available pellets that different companies produce, and they will provide nutritional advice. Or you can go down the private path line and maybe make up your own custom pellet. Depends how much you're going to use, I suppose, and just what you want to do. Our Ration is maybe a little bit more concentrated, doesn't have very much fibre in it, so we don't use any hay in our ration at all. So we needed some extra kind of bits and pieces in that pellet to try and balance out some of the problems that we're going to have health-wise with the lambs. So that's why we've gone for the private nutritionists to try and And you went without the hay option just for ease of feeding, is that why? Yeah, so the modern automatic feeding systems aren't really designed for hay at all. You can't put a very large particle through the the system we've got anyway. In that design process, we looked at putting hay in the pens or using it somehow, whether it's processed or whatnot, and it just created a lot more work, a lot more expense, and so that's where we went to the decision of feeding just a grain-only ration. We still use hay, I must say, in our induction. So that's a whole different thing. That's still open troughs with a mixer that we chop the hay and add pellets and grain to. And that's somewhere where we do change our ration every couple of days as we induct the lambs. So are you weaning them into that induction process? Every lot of lamb is different. Normally, if we've got feed, we'll wean them into the paddock. 
we'll try and grow them out until they're 40-odd kilos before they come in. But saying that, you know, one of the drought years, we had lambs, we had no feed, I think they were about 18, 19 kilos, and we put them in. Every time you do it, it's a little bit different. The beauty of a feedlot is that you can sit down before you buy those lambs or before you put those lambs in. You can do your figures. You know whether you're going to make a profit or not. And you know how much feed you've got in front of you. Yeah, you know how much feed you've got. You know, it's different to putting a crop in where you just don't know what your yield's going to be. You pretty much know all your figures the day that you buy those lambs if you've done your homework. When it doesn't work, you just don't buy lambs or you just don't put them in there. And that's, I suppose, the gets a little bit different, Put get your head around that if from a traditional farming kind of program. But at the moment, it's not very profitable at the moment. There aren't any contracts out at the moment that we're going to be profitable for us. And so we're not trading right at the moment. Mm-hmm. Feedlot's empty just um, at the moment. Mind you, we always have a bit of a maintenance period through the winter months. And do you ever take on other stock to fatten for other people? No. So from what we've worked out, our insurance doesn't cover us for doing contract fattening. And we would need a certain type of insurance, apparently. I haven't really looked into it, but I was informed of that. And we haven't had any um, people asking us to do that. And at the end of the day, if you're going to have them in there, they might as well be your own lambs. That makes sense. One interesting thing we found with the feedlot is the manure is actually really great. We've just recently purchased the manure spreader to spread the manure. We've done a couple of, I suppose, beyond. They're paddock-sized kind of trials, but last year with a wheat crop that had been manured the year before, there was a 50% increase in yield on where the manure had been. It's kind of a system if you kind of think of it within the farm where we like to feed our own lambs. We've got grain that was historically cheap at the moment. It's a little bit dearer and has a big influence on profitability, of course, with the farm. But we were growing a lot of barley that was $150 a tonne or whatever. This was a good way of evaluating the barley. We had lambs that we always needed to finish. So it was a good way of finishing the lambs. Manure out the other end is a really good fertilizer. So it was kind of that whole thing which was helping us grow more barley. How do you work that out financially? I know you've mentioned that the feedlots are separate entity. So a lot of people, they'll start feedlotting because they've already got the feed there on hand and they say it doesn't cost them anything. But are you factoring that cost in? Yeah, so we've got a little Excel spreadsheet that I set up. We punch in all our numbers and the grains all valued at what I could sell it for or what I have to buy it in for kind of style thing at the time. We include labour, everything within that, depreciation, the whole works and jerks. And at the end of the time, you know, thing you come out with a very slim little margin. <laughs> there are some non-cash costs in there. So yeah. you have to you look at it. But you can make a decision then as to whether is it worthwhile doing that trade or maybe do we need to look for a better contract price or a different type of lamb or when margins get slimmer, I suppose, you, you make sure you're buying a lamb that is going to be a fast grower. You don't want a very slow-growing first cross lamb or something like that in there if your margins are tight. So it's, you've got to take all of that into account. Which a lot of that comes down to experience too in knowing what you're looking for in those lambs. I suppose it does. There's a bit of experience in it. Again, your agent is a big influence on that because once you do take your contracts, and if you take three or four months worth of contracts out, you've contracted to sell a lamb two months before you've bought it. So you have to be fairly confident in what you're doing and your ability to do it. Otherwise, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. I suppose one of the things you need to look at in the feedlot is just those poor doers, not so much your deaths, but the ones that just don't do all that well. So if you're running at 
you might have one and a half percent deaths. But if you've got five to 10% of lambs that don't perform, they're the ones that will cost you a lot of money. So you need to be identifying those lambs early and just get them out of there. Yeah, then you just put them back out onto pasture or just change the ration. Well, biosecurity is a bit hard. So you don't like taking something out of the feedlot and back out on the pasture. We do have a couple of small paddocks just close that we use just for lambs that have come out that need to get back on green feed for whatever reason. But they don't tend to go out on the rest of the farm, neither we'd sell them. One of the systems that we can improve on is that early identification of non-doers. And we've toyed around with some walkover weighing within the feedlot, and that would be a big help to be able to implement that. It's a bit expensive at the moment to do it over, well, there's 20 pens. So if you've got to have a unit in each pen, it's going to add up a bit of money. But there's some pretty cool tech coming out these days that will really help, I think, in the feedlot industry just to identify that bottom 10% and removing that out. Instantly, you've increased your growth rate because you got rid of your bottom 10%. So there's a lot of work involved in the feedlotting with bringing them into lambs into whey. Usually, our basic process is we lambs will you know, arrive on the truck, they'll spend the night in the yards, and they'll have a drench, a vaccination, any other treatments that they need the next day. Usually, they'll be on feed overnight in the yards. They'll need to have a second vaccination at some time. So they'll also be waiting, I suppose. And they'll have to have a second vaccination about four weeks later, in between that four to six weeks, which sometimes you kind of think, oh, gosh, they're only going to be here for another week. But that last week, if you haven't given them the second vaccination, is when they'll die of pulpy kidney. I guarantee that one. So you have them in, they're weighed the first time when they go in there. And they might get weighed twice before then the final weigh when they go out. But if you work out every time you weigh them, you lose two days of growth. Mm. So the first one you're never going to get away from because you've got to weigh them in. But those other two, there's four days of growth that you've lost over the period of six to eight weeks that the lambs are in the feedlot. So if we can use a walkover weighing and instantly there's a gain of four days where we don't have to touch these lambs. Yeah, and I have no doubt you've done the numbers on that. We played around with the company, but we need to do a lot more um, research there. You, to make it really worthwhile, you need to have a drafting set up on it as well within the pen. And in each pen, like you said. Yeah, it? so that's a dream. It's in the pipeline. <laughs> yeah. dream pipeline. Like the, the next speed lot I build, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today, David. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources. We've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Nerily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.